Man, I love seeing first Wednesday crowd. Man, you, you guys just sound hungry tonight. And I don't mean like half-priced appetizers at Applebee's hungry. I mean like I feel like y'all are like, I don't mean like Waffle House double-covered smothered hungry. I mean like y'all, it just seemed like somebody like, y'all keep this up? I am. I don't know. Let's just... We're going to get ready to jump in. Like Pastor Rick said, uh, man, we're, we're going uh, to, if you're new, I'm just going to recap just what he said real quick. Make sure you understand that. Uh, first Wednesdays for us is a different environment. Um, and so uh, one of the things God challenged me as a pastor is that we have the responsibility to teach our church what it looks like to read the Bible and teach the Bible um, on a, in an exposition and an exegesis. And so what do we mean by that? It means that on Sundays we preach topical sermons. So we're going to talk about peace or this Sunday we're going to talk about sushi sex and subtitles. And, like, and so um, whatever, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the topic is, we, um, but on first Wednesdays, we're literally going to take a whole chapter. We're going to move through the whole chapter and we're literally just going to expose what God's word is saying. Um, because as you read your Bibles, your Bible should read you. I'll say it again. As you read your Bibles, your Bibles should read you. What do I mean by that? Your Bible is a mirror. And so if you read the word of God and it never looks back at you and says, hey, bro, you need to fix some of that, then you're reading it wrong. If all you get out of your Bible is you are blessed and highly favored, even though I believe you can be, you are missing a good component of what your Bible is telling you. Because obedience and sacrifice comes before blessed and highly favored. And so sometimes we're looking to just walk in favor and God's saying, you need some biblical flavor if you're going to want. All right, so anyways, it's good. Let's get ready to jump into Romans 13. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to do it. If you have your Bibles, make sure you turn there. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, God, we, first of all, we thank you that you have placed us in a time such as this with your word. God, we thank you that it is available. We thank you that it is alive, that it's breathing that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts between bone and marrow, and, and it has the ability to dig deep into our spirit, show us the parts of us that are not like you, and then prompts us to change those areas, God, in ways that we can better reflect Christ. So we just pray tonight that your word does what it has already promised that it would do, and that it would fulfill what it set out to accomplish. And so, God, I pray that as our hearts are prompted and our toes may be stepped on, uh, Father, that we would see the areas in our life in which we can change uh, to be more like you so that you get the glory out of our life, which is your ultimate goal and satisfaction. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, uh, I want to break down Romans 13 for a second. Uh, the Apostle Paul sets out to do a few things in Romans chapter 13 to put them on the surface very, very quickly for those of you that are taking notes. All right. The first thing he aims to accomplish is he wants to give us a, less, a lesson in subjection to authority. Okay. So the first thing he's going to do, he's going to give us a lesson in subjection to authority, which honestly is where we're going to spend the most amount of our time tonight discussing that reality. Then he gives us a lesson of justice and love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. So how are we supposed to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ? He gives us a lesson in that. And then thirdly, he gives us a lesson uh, of sobriety and godliness within ourselves. All right. And so that'll be the last thing that we look at. Uh, and so let's jump in Romans 13 verse one, let every person say every person, every person. be subject to the governing authorities 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All right, we're just going to stop. Romans 13.1, we're just going to stop and read it again. Every person, say every person, person. is subject. Say subject. subject. That means you are placed under governing authorities, okay? So when we're talking about governing authorities, we're not talking about church governance, albeit that is true. We're talking about presidents, mayors, governors. We're talking about rulers on earth. Every person has been subject, placed under the rule of governing authorities, and there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, every governing authority that has governing authority has been instituted by God to be in the position that they're in at the time. All right? This is important because then Paul's going to ask much of us according to that reality. Therefore, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Who would, you, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does, not, he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. All right, we want to pause for a second. We want to unpack what's happening here and what Paul's trying to communicate to us according to this. Now, Romans 13, in and of itself, on the surface, is not a super yay chapter. I'm not going to lie to you. This is the biggest first Wednesday crowd we've ever had. You guys should have been here for Romans 9. But... <laughs> But because that one was a lot of fun, <laughs> but uh, or eight or 10 or 13 is not as fun. I'll just put it that way. Right. But the reason we do exposition teachings on first Wednesday is because all of the Bible has authority. Right. Second Timothy says that it's all for our good, which means it's all useful for correction and teaching. Right. So so we don't skip over the passages because they're not as fun. All right. If you want proof, go to Numbers. All right, anyway, so <laughs> in Jesus' name, y'all know in that Bible reading plan, you're like, Numbers again? God. <laughs> Genesis and Numbers. And he had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son. <laughs> Anyways, all right, sorry. I, that was my tangent. I needed to get off on there for a second. All right, therefore, whoever resists the authorities. All right, so Romans 1 and 2, what we're doing, we're dealing with subject, uh, subjection to lawful authority. So the first thing that he comes out of the gate says, let every person be subject. So this is important because the, the reality is you're not supposed to be subject to the persons. You're supposed to be subject to the positions. Now, this is the first reality we have to understand because when God allows someone to be placed in authority, we by default try to figure out if we agree or disagree with the person, not realizing God's not asking us to agree or disagree with the person. He's asking us to submit to the authority of the position. In other words, you don't have to love who the president is. You do have to submit as a Christian to the president as an office. So you don't have to love who the mayor is, but you do have to submit to the mayor as an office. In other words, Paul is making it clear here, the governing authorities, the position that exists, God puts people in positions for his glory, period, full stop. Well, how's he getting glory out of, that's not for me to figure out. Well, I don't like his policies. I don't like what this person, I don't like that person. 
you don't have to like the person, but hear me, you are subject to the authority. And God will execute his will through the authorities he places in offices and in positions, and it's not on us to figure it out. All right? But here's a question I have for you. Is it Christian to rebel against those we don't agree with or to live a Christ-like life even in subjection to someone we don't agree with? Because if we can't submit to earthly rulers, what truly makes us think we can submit to someone who pushes back on everything inside of you that you think is good, he says is bad. So the reality is we are subject to authorities according to the Apostle Paul, right? But he breaks down why. So we have to understand the person may be wicked, yet the power of their God-established position is to be submitted to and obeyed. And I think this is important, this concept to in every way, in every way. And, and what we mean by that is uh, inward honor and outward reverence and respect. So for every person of, uh, for every position of power in government, right, in governing authorities, there should be an inward honor and an outward reverence and respect. Now, I don't know how many of you have a Facebook page. But about every four years, we watch Christians ignore Romans 13. If they're not on this side, God's not using them. Well, no, whoever God's... Now, I am not sitting here saying we don't have a right and a responsibility to obey biblical conscience and order to then follow God's prompting to put in power who we believe the Holy Spirit is leading us to say yes to according to biblical guidelines. That is entirely accurate. But at the end of the day, whoever is placed is placed in a God-established position. It's our job to honor, not try to figure it out. All right? So again, I'm not alleviating our responsibility to follow godly biblical guidelines on how we believe he leads us to help make these decisions because the Holy Spirit prompts us and uses us to establish his glory and his ordinance. All right, does that make sense? So all that to say, because some people will read Romans 13 and they'll go, well, God's going to put whoever he wants in power. Why do I have to bother with it? No. Okay. It's the same reason that we pray. Right, And I wanted to use this as an opportunity just to teach a prayer. We just came out of 21 days of prayer, which was super powerful. And God's been doing amazing things even through that. But in 21 days of prayer, we have, I've had a lot of people come up to me and they say, if we believe God is absolutely sovereign, why do we need to pray? Now, not relational prayers. We all know we pray just to connect with God relationally. But why are we praying, God, do this if God's sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do anyways? And I wanted to answer that question because it kind of goes with what we're talking about with establishing governing authorities. When we pray, we are not changing the mind of a sovereign God. I'm going to say it again. When we pray, we're not changing the mind of a sovereign God. God's not up there in heaven and he's like, ah, oh, snap. Eli done prayed today. <laughs> it's like, I had this whole plan figured out, but since he, and he, it was really passionate too. Right? He was listening to the right song, like the right environment. He cried a little, <laughs> right? Like, you know, and so God's, God's not sitting over there like, you know what? 
all right, Eli, you can have your way. It wasn't the way I was going to do it, but since it was Eli, we're really hyping this man up. Y'all going to go to him for y'all's prayer life too, but hey, Eli, slide this to God for me, all right? No, like, the reality is God's not up in heaven looking at us going, you know what, I was going to do it this way, but you know, since, since you showed up, I think, I'll, I think I'll do it this way now. That is not what it means to pray, all right? Prayer, let me just help you out for a second. This, has, this is not in Romans 13 fabric, but I think it goes in line with our responsibility to, to God. Prayer is a divine invitation by the Holy Spirit to partner with the will of God. I'm going to say it again. Prayer is the divine invitation by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God. So when we pray, we're not praying, God, don't do the thing you are going to do and do this thing. What we're praying is when, when, when you have that inkling to pray for a family member, when you go to the hospital and you have a friend or someone that's been hurting or they've been diagnosed with something, when you pray, you are inspired by the Holy Spirit in that moment to partner with God in an invitation to accomplish his will on earth that will bring him the most glory. Does that make sense? And so I think we've drastically distorted the reality of what prayer is supposed to be. Listen, he used words to put the sun, moon, and stars into space, and he operates outside of space and time. I don't think you're over here in Pensacola, Florida, are shifting heaven and earth. But isn't that kind of, I mean, are you, is anyone else grew up kind of feeling that way? Yeah. It's like, God, I know you had a plan, but I'd really like you to change it. That's, but that's not the reality. But I feel, like, I, f- I feel like there's a lot of people, that's our prayer posture. But what if, we, what if we accepted the reality that what God is inviting us into is God is saying, in my sovereign will to bring myself the most glory, I have established a plan. And even if your prayer gets answered, it's because it was an invitation from me to partner with me in what I aim to accomplish. Right? So it's not to say God has this. Listen, every prayer you pray is an invitation, divine invitation from God to accomplish his plan his, for his glory on this earth. And so when we carry out our responsibilities, whether it's voting or any of those things, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing. We're, partner, we're, we're being prompted by the Holy Spirit in our conscience because it's been renewed by the Holy Spirit to follow biblical order, to do what we believe God has led us to do and put action to our faith so that we can see God reign on this earth. Does that make sense? And so we want to make sure we understand what some of these things are and what some of these things are not so that we can understand God's sovereignty is still supreme. I'm going to say that again. God's sovereignty reigns no matter what. All right? So he's always in control. So... We honor the positions, but let's talk about why Paul was talking about this, because this matters. So there's a couple things that were happening in Rome at the time to help us understand why Paul wrote this, and we can look at how those things correlate to our time now, right? So first of all, uh, Paul was giving a healthy pushback in that moment to the church of Rome, right? Because in the church of Rome at that time, the rulers of the church of Rome have been established as, as having higher authority than the rulers of administration. So the church of Rome, what we know to be the Roman Catholic church, right? The popes had more power than princes and princesses. And so what Paul was coming in and saying is, no, 
Every person. What was the, look at the first three words. What does it say? Let every person. You know what that means? It doesn't matter what your calling is. If God places you in subject to rulers and authorities, that's where he's placed you, and we have to follow in accordance. So first of all, he was pushing back on the idea that there could be a superior person on behalf of God that everyone else was supposed to follow. Secondly, uh, it was obedience to rulers. Uh, obedience to rulers was a way to establish Christians as people that are orderly and subject to a laws. And so in that time, what had happened is coming out of Jerusalem, right, this movement of Christ was happening. And I want you to imagine for a second, right, this, this religious Jewish law tradition for a second that's been rooted for generations and years that we follow the laws, we do these things, right? Well, what happened? Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And he sets grace into motion and freedom comes to the captives, right? And now it's no longer about following law, but it's a following, or following under grace. And now we are in a pursuit after Christ with grace. And so he set all of these things in motion for us. But the problem is when you release people, what do they do? Go crazy, right? If we go into that kid's space back there and we say, there are no rules. Y'all remember that commercial? Put your shirt back on. Oh, sorry. There are no rules, right? What are they going to do? Erupt into anarchy, right? And so what do we, ha do we have coming out of Jerusalem, a, 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 a portion of Christianity that is in complete defiance to anything law because Jesus said, I fulfilled it. So now they have no responsibility to follow any rules. And Paul is saying, whoa, hoss. Right? Because in Rome, the governing authorities, what were they starting to do? They're cracking down on Christianity. In other words, we've taken it from there are no rules to now Rome is saying, well, if you're going to pretend there are no rules, then we're going to make you understand there are rules. How many of you parents have ever said, oh, you want me to prove to you I'm in charge? So Rome sets into motion this idea, oh, you're just going to follow whatever you want. Let me bring you, let's bring you back into reality for a second, right? And Paul was saying, like, Paul's out there like, fellas, just can we, everyone stop, right? And what he's doing in this moment is he's saying, listen, Christians are being known as factious and uh, seditious and turbulent in regards to public peace. And we need to bring that down because we have a responsibility to the gospel and all people can think of us as Christians as disruptive, and we are here to disrupt, not the peace. We're here to disrupt in the spirit. We're not here to disrupt everything in society. We're here to disrupt the things that are against God and against Christ. And so Christians had taken that and just ran with it in the all different directions. And he's like, hey, we need to, we need to let's hone this in a little bit. Right, So Paul's bringing some correction, some clarity. Let's bring this all in a little bit, right? And so we understand in John 18.36, you don't have to turn there, but in John 18.36, Jesus gives clarity to why, what his kingdom looked like. And he says this, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And the idea that Christ's kingdom was not of this world had rooted spirit of rebellion in Christian circles. So they're saying his kingdom's not of this world. We don't need to follow the kingdom of anything. We could just do whatever we want. 
And again, Paul's reining that concept in. The reality is that we are encouraged to be rebellious. So here's the reality I want to help you understand. We are encouraged to be rebellious. Turn to your neighbor and say, be rebellious. Now, you teenagers over here, hold on for just a second, all right? So, hold tight. Yeah, all the parents were like, oh, thank God. Right, no, no, no. We are rebellious to be, or we are we're encouraged to be rebellious to the spirit of the enemy, not to the laws of the land. So we are encouraged to be rebellious to the spirit of the enemy, not to the laws of the land. And that's where the Christians were in this moment in Rome, is their rebellion had taken root, right? Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, he said. We've been now adopted into grace. Law is no longer something that applies to us in that way anymore. And Paul is bringing clarity. So Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. He's saying, no, 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 it's not. But listen, we still have a responsibility to impact the world, with the reality of who God is, and they're never going to listen to us if we all act like morons. That's the BLV, the Brad Livingston version. That's not exactly in here, but that's what I pulled out. You can Google search it. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, so he goes on. He says, we are to submit to them, and in verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So I just put that right out there. If you resist the authority, listen, you're resisting what God has appointed. No matter what side of the aisle you're comfortable on. No matter where you land, Democrat, Republican, whatever, resistance to authority means you're resisting who God has appointed. And those who resist will, what do the last two words of verse 2 say? Incur judgment. So if you are in a constant all-out assault against the position, the person in the position of power and authority that's been placed over you, you are by default, according to Romans 13, placing yourself under a judgment from God you can't get out from under until you repent and turn away. Which is why every four years, I just want to log off for six months. Because all I do is I just see Christians in this bomb-launching assault at each other and people. And it's like, man, I'm so glad the world is watching us right now. Which is what Paul was dealing with here. He's saying, the world is watching. Like, in Rome, you're trying to bring your gospel to your neighbor, and they're looking at you acting like a complete buffoon right now. You're acting lawless, you're acting ridiculous, you're pretending there are no limitations to your actions because you're under grace, and the people you're talking about come to Jesus, they're looking at you going, if Jesus is what you got, I'm good. And can I help you out for a second? Some people at your work are looking at you going, if Jesus is what you got, I'm good. Some people we sit next to at restaurants are going, he's wearing a Jesus shirt, I knew they were all like that. Come on, y'all know somebody. You've seen someone act wild with a fish thing on their car and been like, <laughs> come on. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Anybody ever been like, quit repping my brand? You're giving us all a bad name. You need, like, has anybody ever wanted to take a bumper sticker off a car? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, bro, you're making us all look bad. You need to chill out. I was in a, I was in a restaurant somewhat recently, and uh, there was a guy 
literally had on a Jesus save shirt and he was going absolutely bananas on a waitress. And I was just sitting there like, perfect. Because <laughs> everybody in the restaurant who's not saved is like, there they go. And I'm like, they nothing. <laughs> Don't put me in. I'm not, we're not. Come on. We're not, this ain't. Yeah, <laughs> we don't rock like that. But how many guys know to the outside world, we're all in the same camp together. So this is what Paul is trying to do. Paul's trying to create it. Hey, listen, you can't be out there just acting wild because the world is watching, right? And so I went up to that waitress. First of all, I apologize to that waitress. I tipped the waitress. I was just like, hey, I want you to know not all of us are like that. And she said, I wait, every, I wait on tables every Sunday. I know what church folks are like. I said, I said, maybe, but church folks don't mean they're Jesus folks. So, so I said, here, and, and I, I, I tipped her. I said, just know that everybody doesn't rep that camp, right? And if this, this has absolutely nothing to do with Romans 13, but if you go eat, tip well, please, please. Listen, I worked in the restaurant industry. Can I be honest? They hate y'all. <laughs> For real. You come in and buttoned up clothes on Sundays, they're fighting over who's not taking your table. I just want you to know that right now. They're like, no, 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 no. That's you. We rolled the dice on the last one. I lost. This is yours. I just want to be honest with you, right? That's why I go in and stat backs and hoodies. I'm like, no, 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 that's not my camp. Anyway, all right, so. <laughs> just kidding. But, all right, let's get back to it. So he says, you will incur judgment. And I think, I think this is a reality. I, honest to God, I'm not saying this is the only reason why. But most of the people I see the loudest about their personal belief systems on social media, and I know I'm kind of harping on that, but I think social media gave all the people in the world that didn't need to have a public opinion the ability to have one. So, but I think what, what we see there. The people that are the loudest are the ones that lack the most peace. Like, think about it. The people that are the loudest are the ones that are the most bitter. They're the most, like, ferocious. They're, they have no peace. They have no joy, right? And I can't help but to look at Romans 13 and go, is that the byproduct of what they have received because of what they've put out? Now, I got to kind of weasel some book, chapter, and verse on that. But it just makes, there's some sort of judgment set aside for people who are intentionally rebellious, regardless of what God's word says. And we have to understand that. And that's what I, I wanted to help you unpack. Ecclesiastes 10.20 says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. Right? So he says, even in your thoughts, like... I'm not talking about what you type. I'm not talking about what you say. I'm talking about God says, even in your thoughts, don't curse those that are in authority and those that are ruling, right? Because if you do, there is, there is something that happens in your heart when you speak against, right? And, and that's why I think it's so important we understand that James 3.10, it says that, for from the same mouth, 
come blessing and cursing. But my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And, and for, you know, I'll, I'll take, we're kind of in this political space for a second. And I hate, honest to God, I hate this space. It's like my least favorite. But we have a responsibility to preach the word. And so, but I think in James 3.10, many of us are saying, God bless our nation. And then we're speaking against every person he's put in position over it. And I don't know if you realize this, but if the ship goes down and I'm on it, guess who goes down with it? So if we're speaking curses over the people God put in power, hoping they fail, but they fail at the helm of a ship that I'm riding on, I sink with it. I don't want to sink with it. So you know what? I may not agree with so-and-so, but Lord bless them in Jesus' name. Like, and I am going to pray. There hasn't been a president yet. I haven't pr- prayed this one prayer over. Awaken to them their need for the reality of the gospel and cause them to repent of any wickedness in their heart. And that wickedness can be assigned to these issues or these issues or these issues or these issues. But every president that's ever took office, I pray the exact same thing. God, awaken them to their need for the gospel and cause them to repent for any wickedness in their heart. And therefore, let them move into, subject, or move into authority over the subjects with godly reign. That's my prayer. So no matter what, we have to rea- realize that we can't speak blessings on our nation but curse everyone that God puts in authority. We can't speak blessing, but then I want you to take that from a macro United States level, and I want you to bring it down to your boss. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We're just, no, I'm just <laughs> but, but, but for real, because it's easy to talk about the person that's far from us that we don't really have to deal with that often. But your boss fits into this category as well. The governor fits into it as well. The police chief fits into it as well. The mayor, right, it, our council member, all, they all fit into it as well. And so we have to make sure we understand what it means to be subject to. So let's just keep going. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, rulers that God places, they're not there trying to create affliction um, on people who are doing right things. But rulers are, have affliction on people that are doing uh, bad things, right? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay? Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not, not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience, right? And I was doing a dig on verse 5 to try to unpack this as best I could, right? And, and this is what uh, one of the commentaries I pulled from said this, we must be subject not only for wrath, but for conscience' sake. And so not so much the Latin word, I'm going to try to get this right, formidine penea, which means from the fear of punishment, but more so as virtutis amore, which means from the love of virtue. So let me explain what that means. So it's not so much do what is right so that you don't get smacked on the hand as much as it is do what is right because that's what needs to be in your heart. So it says in verse 2, right, that you'll incur judgment. 
Um, it says that there is a wrath of leaders, and it says all those things. But God's ultimate desire, and Paul's language in verse 5 is, but that shouldn't be the reason why you don't do something. Just because like, you're going to get in trouble isn't a good reason not to do something. Do it because you don't want to disrupt your affection with God in your heart. Do it because you have a desire to mirror Christ and let him reign in your spirit. Don't do it because you're afraid of the bad. Do it because you want to be good, right? <clears throat> and so this is important, and, and that's why uh, I don't have the passage in front of me, but it's hard, there's a passage uh, in the New Testament that talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And it says that uh, worldly, it says godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death and destruction, and what that text literally means is in our sin and in our habits and in our disobedience, if you get caught and you're more upset that you got caught than you are you broke the heart of God with what you did, then you're not really sorry that you did it. You're sorry you got caught doing it. And so when we deal with people in counseling, the first question we're trying to figure out is, are they truly sorry for what they did? Or are they, truly, are they just sorry because they got caught doing it? Because if you're just sorry you got caught doing it, that's worldly sorrow. And the Bible says that leads to death and destruction. In other words, you'll only apologize to the degree that you can figure out how to do it again without getting caught. So you're only, sorrow, uh, you're only sorry now, as soon as you can figure out how to get out of getting caught, you're going to do it again. But godly sorrow means you're sorrowful not for the fact that you got caught. You're sorrowful because you know your action broke the heart of the one who sees everything. You're sorrowful, you're sorry, because despite the fact that Jesus went to the cross and paid for that sin, you went and did it again, knowingly and willingly. And so godly sorrow, what does it do? It leads us to repentance. This is what David experienced in the Psalms. When he, if you don't know, David had a, a, quite a rap sheet. And he did, I mean, he had an affair with a woman that he saw bathing on a roof, got her pregnant, then sent her husband to war to die. I mean, this dude, the last recorded words in the Bible of David are, I want that man's head on a platter. For the record, this is the man after God's own heart. Be encouraged. <laughs> right? But David's phrase in the Psalms, which, which made us understand this reality, is David looked at God and he said, Against you and you alone have I sinned. In other words, David's heart was constantly, I know I messed this up, but I don't care what the world thinks about me. My sorrow is the fact that I stand before a holy God and I know I've brought filth in with me. And your heart I broke. Yes, I hurt these people, but against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Which is what kept him as the man after God's own heart, despite the fact that he wasn't perfect. And so our sorrow, our godly sorrow, leads us to repentance. So listen, can I just help you out for a second? If you've got sin in your life, the greatest evidence that you love the Lord is to change. The greatest evidence that you love being religious, hoping it's going to get you somewhere, is to not change. The greatest evidence that Christianity is a list of checkboxes for you is that you keep doing what you're doing, knowing God is watching. 
But the greatest evidence that you've moved from a list of checkboxes to a genuine relationship with the Savior is that you repent and you change. And so my encouragement to you is to repent and to change. Why? Because whether we're talking about submitting to governing authorities or we're talking about submitting to the governance of Christ in our life, both of them should come from the idea of being virtuous or trying to align ourselves with Christ, not just because we don't want to go to hell. Right? And so we want to understand that this was, it's not out of fear, but out of virtue, a desire to represent Christ, not just a fear of God's judgment. This was key in Paul's letters since the Jews still felt that a law-based approach to God was a fearful uh, one to, to go, to have, sorry, was a fearful one to have rather than a joyous pursuit. And so the one thing that I think we all can still fall prey to is this reality uh, that the Jews still saw, so we have the Christians, but the Jews still saw uh, that a law-based approach to God was still the best way to get to him, not realizing that grace was on the scene, and I think this is something we all still fall prey to ourselves. All right, let's move. Uh, verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. I don't particularly care for verse 6. Uh, it doesn't say anything about write-offs. There's, this is very gray, okay? So, <laughs> for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. All right? And uh, this is not directly connected to this, but I just kind of feel like I need to put it on there anyways. Um, again, some of I, I'm willing to admit that there's a couple things I'm introducing here that I, I, I'm, I'm implying something. So let conviction set in if it's the reality of the text that you can process. Does that make sense? So I, I'm in, I, there's a couple things I'm implying, the incurred judgment portion, and then what I'm about to say for this. But um, pay to someone what they are owed. As Christians, stop beating people up over getting the cheapest dollar amount for everything you want. <laughs> Selah. <laughs> I, I, again, I'm thinking about Paul's intent behind Romans 13, which is that we have a responsibility to display Christ and how we honor others how we honor authority, all those things, right? And so um, if Christians are, and I'm just using Christians as a blanket term, if we're always the one beating people up for the lowest possible price or some of those things, it's like, man, are we really representing like Christ well? And again, this is, a, this is kind of something I'm, I'm implying based on how the text is written. Do with that what you will, all right? If the conviction sets in, so be it. We'll move on. Say well. All right. Uh, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes, right, uh, revenue, respect, honor. Verse 8, owe, nothing, or, or no, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Right? So this, this is made abundantly clear in John 13, 35. 
where Jesus is speaking, and he says, your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. So literally, Jesus says, you want to show the world that you love me? Love each other. But how many people do we know they are saying they love Christ, but their love between people is... <laughs> so you want to... Sh- listen, th- this is verses 8 through 10. You want to show the world that you love Jesus? Love people. Very simple. Not easy, because people can be stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Not all people. Someone challenged me when I said that in a sermon recently. They're like, don't. People are dealing with their stupidity. And I'm like, (laughs) maybe they are, maybe they aren't. No, but in all honesty, uh, people, we all know, like, never mind. We don't have to go there. All right. (laughs) Verse 11. I don't feel like I have to harp on that. I think we're all in the same boat. Perfect. Very good. All right. Just a bunch of heads. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul wraps all of this up and he's saying, Again, keep in mind what he's done. He's talked about subjection. He's talked about love. But then he moves to the end. He's talking about godliness, which puts the kind of the exclamation point on what Paul was aiming to accomplish with the whole chapter, which is the world is watching, which is live a holy life, right? Which is pursue godliness, but do it in virtue, not out of fear of judgment. Do it because you want to be like God and you want to please him, not because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you don't. And he lands on this part where he talks about the idea that the end is near and we have a responsibility to live a life that supports that, right? And so he talks about some of the things we shouldn't do. We need to stay away from these things because they're going to grip our flesh, right? They're they're going to gratify the desires of our body. And I think the, the best way this shows up is in uh, Colossians chapter 3. And if you'll turn there for me for just a second, we're going to read this. Because um, I think the big question when we read Romans 13, uh, 11 through 14, is we see this directive uh, from Paul. And he's talking about, okay, the end is near, so don't do all of these things. Because doing all of these things is going to, A, hinder your witness, um, but also it's giving in to the cravings of your flesh, right? And so as he gets here, I want to go to Colossians 3, because I think Colossians 3 does the best job at helping us unpack what it looks like to actually do this. So if, if Romans 13 is what you do, Colossians 3 is how you do it. So let's look at Colossians 3 for a second as we get ready to close. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. So again, let's pause for a second. Since you've been raised with Christ, 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right, so what is he saying so far? Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. So, so where should our mind be? Where should our thoughts be? Where should our attention be as believers? On Christ. So let me just help you for a second. The quickest way to get away from all the things in your life that are constantly dragging you down is put your mind on Christ. You are more bitter, you lack joy, you are more frustrated, you are more hurt, you are more jealous, you are all of those things when you are looking at the world more than you're looking at Christ. So put your mind on Christ, right? And then he goes on to say, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. I'm going to read that again in case it wasn't clear the first time. Toy around with and babysit your sin. Oh, no, that's not what it said. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Paul says, kill it. Kill it. Put it to death. And I believe one of the greatest reasons many of us are struggling is we keep trying to closet our sin rather than kill it. So we're like, Jesus, take it all. And Jesus is like, I'll take that. And you're like, ooh, I think I'm going to hang on to that one, though. And, and I've used this analogy before. I'm sure many of you have heard this analogy. Uh, I, we got it from Matt Chandler. So, but he equates uh, our sin to uh, a lion. And for many of us, we think that we can have a pet lion in our house and it won't one day destroy you. Like, it's an apex predator. It kills everything. Nothing kills it. All right? Unless you have a gun. That's different. But nonetheless, right? Like, it is an apex predator. Like, it, yes. All right? So the reality is many of us are trying to treat our sin like a pet lion. So we're, we're trying to have it in our home thinking it won't one day destroy us. And so we have to, what? Not babysit it. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he goes on to list it. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. Right? You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. It says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, sin and slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, say therefore. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. All right, so what does it look like to walk this out? So we kind of gave you insight into Colossians 3, kill what's in you. So this is what it looks like to actually walk. Verse 12, therefore, so you're killing what's in you, you're putting on the scene. Therefore, as God's chosen people, 
holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what does it look like to walk this out? Put that on. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So that's what it looks like. So as we aim to accomplish Romans 13, we look at Colossians 3, we get a whole picture as to what God's trying to communicate to us. So as we read God's word, God's word reads us, we see what it looks like to walk out with Christ. So what is the goal? What are we trying to accomplish? What is our hope? What is our pursuit? Our pursuit and all these things, let's live a life that shows the world that we belong to Christ. It doesn't mean we pursue anarchy or any of those things. It means we pursue Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for how you've called us. Lord, we surrender to you. Lord, we just pray that you would prompt our hearts to see the reality of what you're calling us to. And so, God, uh, I pray that, again, as we've read your word, that your word would speak back to us. And, Lord, we're so grateful that it never returns void. And so, God, for some of us uh, tonight, we've received a bit of instruction on maybe some things in our life that needs to change. How we submit to authority, how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we submit to godliness. God, I pray all of those things we would realize, we are those things are capable. We can reach those things because grace has been extended and so God we thank you tonight and we love you we thank you that your goodness and your mercy is following us so God as we aim to represent you to the world help us see how we can do that better in Jesus name we're going to take just a few minutes tonight as we always do on first Wednesdays we want to give just an opportunity to what we call it, this is a moment of reflection, but on first Wednesdays, we extend that just a little bit. So we're going to take about five minutes and just kind of hear from the Lord. What is he speaking to you tonight? What is he prompting you to say? What is he asking you to repent of? What's in your heart? How have you postured yourself in fearful of God's wrath, but there's been no pursuit of virtue? Are you running from God because you're afraid rather than coming to him because you desire to be like him? godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. So we're just going to take a minute, and if you want to move around, you can come to the altar, you can pray, you can go stand against the wall, you can stay in your seat, whatever you need to do. And let's just take a minute and reflect on this, and we'll come back together and pray before we move.